Hi, producer Jane here, welcoming you to another episode of The Book Pod. Yes, if you're listening to this in the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast feed, we don't want to confuse you, but we do want to let you know about our new little sister podcast, The Book Pod. So we're releasing them here through Don't Shoot the Messenger for a little while longer. But if you don't want to miss out on an episode, make sure you subscribe to The Book Pod. Just search for it in whatever podcast app you use. And tell your friends about the book pod. Enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the book pod, the fortnightly podcast that brings writers, books and readers together via the digital world. My name is Corrie Perkin and today my guest is a writer who lives in Sydney but is admired and adored by tens of thousands of fans around the world. Marcus Suzak wrote four books before his 2005 award-winning bestseller, The Book Thief, was published. And what a stir that book created. The Book Thief catapulted Marcus into the international literary limelight. It has sold 16 million copies and been published in 42 languages. It spent 500 weeks on the New York Times international bestseller list. The book also landed Marcus a movie deal. And of course, the film starring Jeffrey Rush and Emily Watson received critical acclaim when it was released in 2013. The book thief prompted the literary world's most pompous critics to applaud with gusto. It was the book that teenagers loved, book clubs dissected, people like me took on holidays and devoured in just a couple of days. And a book, of course, that made survivors of war and separation and trauma. It made, it, it made them weep. And it was the book that changed Marcus's life. And now he has a new novel, Bridge of Clay, which arrived on our bookshop shelves a few weeks ago and is slow burning its way through a global community of readers. Bridge of Clay tells the story of five brothers, the Dunbar boys, and the havoc and pain and devastation that follows their mother's death and their grieving father's sudden departure from the family home. Eldest brother Matthew is the narrator of this story, a story he punches out on an old typewriter dug up after years of being buried in a suburban backyard. And now a father himself, Matthew reflects upon the family's many sadnesses, and he processes his own grief via his writing. And although Matthew's own pain is there for all to see, it is the journey of the fourth brother, Clayton or Clay, who becomes the focus of this story. Bridge of Clay is one of the finest novels I have read this year, in fact for a long time, and it gives me great delight to welcome Marcus Suzak to the book pod. Hi, Marcus. Thanks, Corrie. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, it's so good to see you. I know you've been travelling internationally already promoting this book. Yeah, well, and you were choking me up there <laughs> as you were talking about the book, and uh, and it's a better summation than I've been able to come up with, so thank you. And uh, now it's good to be home. That's all right. You can have it's... it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I use some of that? Uh, no, it's, it's exciting to, to be home, and uh, you know, and this is so much a book about home and uh, and about living in Australia and, and being part of a family and living in the suburbs and, and all of the, you know, I often think... You know, we often think our lives are mundane, living in, in the suburbs of a city. And I think, no, they're actually quite epic in a lot of ways. We all fall in love. We all have people die on us. Uh, we all have arguments in the kitchen. And uh, and I wanted to bring that kind of, you know, the bigness of that and the, the journeys that we've all made to get there, uh, part of a book. And, uh, and it's a book that means the world to me. 
It's really interesting that you say that about the suburban setting because as I was reading this book and the, the Dunbar boys have over the back fence a disused racetrack area and where I grew up as a little kid in Hampton here in Victoria, there was an old dairy not far from where I grew up mm-hmm. and that seemed to be the centre of all childhood naughty activities, you know, Heidi Chasey and meeting there for your first illegal cigarette and all that <laughs> kind of thing. And each time Clay and his friends... And, and and brothers go to that space. I just kept thinking of that old disused dairy, and you know, and the and the grass where the horses used to um, pick and and you know feed. So yeah. it felt very familiar to me. Yeah, isn't it funny how it's the it's often the little things like so where I grew up, there was where the train went over this overpass over over this this particular road. There was a paddock, and there were two horses on it, and uh, there was a sign on the on the barbed wire fence that said anyone caught feeding these horses will be prosecuted and anyone was spelt E-N-Y-O-N-E and prosecuted was spelt correctly. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't think at the time I might use that one day and, uh, and that's exactly where Achilles the mule uh, in this book is on this property owned by a guy called Malcolm Sweeney who's a bit part character in the book really but really important because I knew when I started this book that I would have a really ambitious main character or, uh, you know, in clay. And then I thought, I, I, th- I saw what I knew what I wanted to happen at the end. And I thought, oh, this book needs a mule in it. And that's why they live in a racing quarter uh, because, you know, you always How can see... you have just a mule in the suburbs? Exactly. It has to be there for a reason. Exactly. And I thought back to horses like vintage crop and and so on coming to Australia. And often they would come with a companion animal like a Shetland pony or something like that. And so I started really thinking of it. And some of your best ideas or most important ideas, people think, oh, what a creative idea, but it's often a necessity. And the necessity for so much of the, the things in Bridge of Clay, like living in a racing quarter, Clay's best friend, Carrie, is an apprentice jockey. This all came about because I wanted there to be a mule in the book. Well, you introduced the mule very early on. And in fact, the first sort of few pages or couple of chapters of the book, uh, my suggestion to um, those who I've recommended this book to when they embark on the journey is just stick with it and try and read the first few couple of chapters in one sitting. So not on and off the tram or, you know, five minutes before you go to bed because it's very important that you get a sense of place and it's not entirely obvious where we are nor who is actually talking nor why the hell is a mule in the kitchen. It was was that. Well, so when I start writing a book, one of the, the first or well, the first three things that happen is often I think of the beginning, the end and the title. And I usually think of the end and the title first and then I start scouring my mind for a beginning and, uh, and I know it when I see it. And when I thought of Michael Dunbar, the father of the Dunbar boys who's been away for a, a long time and they don't even call him dad, they've got a nickname for him, they call him the murderer. Uh, he comes home and he's confronted by, of all things, a mule in the kitchen. And uh, and that last line of the first chapter being, and it's not a spoiler at all because, uh, you know, there aren't there aren't many spoilers on page 15, is, uh, <laughs> is something, uh, well, I'm not even going to say something along the lines of, because I know every word and every, every full stop, comma, and everything in this book, um, but it says a murderer should do many things but under no circumstances should he come home. 
and uh, and and you're right about the beginning. It's uh, I've I've just realised that that was exactly how I wanted to write this book, and that is to that books feel like to me one of the last frontiers of our our patience as people and that you will be rewarded for doing work and that things aren't just let's read a book and then let's read another book and then let's just read another book by the same author that's the same as the last book and uh and I don't think there's anything wrong with that we all have we all eat different things over different periods of time and we we don't eat the same thing every day but there are some books that I think are more rewarding for the little bit of work you've got to do at the beginning of them and you start to see and when you have those revelations like at the very beginning of this book Matthew goes and digs up a typewriter from an old backyard of an old backyard of a town and then in part three you see how it got there. How it got there. Uh, look, I love that. And the, the sense of eureka as the reader when you actually are able yourself to piece things together and emotions and put the put a chronology. You haven't written this book in a chronology. You go back and forth in time. But we, the reader, are trying to get in our minds, well, what happened when? And when we crack it, it's such a feeling of uh, satisfaction. As you say, it's not all laid out before us. Yeah, and I I actually thought of it. And I didn't do this deliberately. Again, I was just trying to get the book to work in the way that it had to work for me to write it. But now I realise that what I was doing is just understanding that stories, we all live our lives moving forward, but we carry all of our stories with us and everything that's happened to us. And they keep beginning over and over again as we relive them and think of them. And so that was how I thought of this book. I wanted the backstories to be important of Clay's mum and dad. And so you see the story of Penelope Dunbar, his mum, and uh, and you see the story of Michael, the boys, um, you know, the five Dunbar brothers' dad as well. And I was just really interested in that idea that we are who, who we are long before we're even born. And our lives start long before that. And so the idea of going back and forth through time to see how we've arrived at now and the past and the present converge until the very end and then we find out why Clay is the way he is and why he wanted to make and build this one beautiful thing by building a bridge that in so many ways is made of stone and arches but is also made of him. Marcus, you use Matthew as your narrator. Why did you choose the eldest brother? And after, we, we, again, no spoiler alert, potties, but the, when um, the father Dunbar leaves home as a, a grief-stricken and um, unexplained why he does leave home for so many chapters, you're just wondering, wondering until you have some sort of resolution. But Matthew is the one who is what we would call the breadwinner. And he is the responsible one in a sense, uh, although other brothers also have their strengths and weaknesses. But why did you choose Matthew? Well, I tried everybody to narrate this book. I tried <laughs> I, I, for the first six years. You know, believe it or Can not. Can you just tell everybody how long you've been working on it? Well, it was thirteen years between Drinks. the book thief and and Bridge of Clay. But I first got the idea when I was twenty years old, and uh, and I even wrote it when I was twenty one or twenty two. In, and it's unrecognisable to, to this book. And uh, did you have a main character called Clay? And I did, did he build a bridge? Yeah, and it was always the the reason it came to it. And every book needs a little bit of luck. Uh, you know, in the case of the book thief, it was the idea of having death as the narrator. There was just that that was just the idea that gave the book 
uh, the magic I needed to write it. And in this case, I called the character in my mind, when I thought of a boy building a bridge, I called him Clayton. I could have called him anything, but I used Clayton. And then I went, oh, okay, so it'll be called Clayton's Bridge. And then I went, no, Bridge of Clay. And as soon as I said that title in my mind, a whole new range of meaning and level of emotion came into the, like just in a in a big flood. And I saw the end of the book and what he was trying to do. And I saw that the idea of clay being a name and a material and that clay, the material can be molded into anything that needs fire to set it. And I thought, oh, this is, this could be my best idea. And that he's making this bridge out of himself. And then one day it will be, it will be uh, tested and the sun will be coming up in the flooded river. But um, to come back to the idea of Matthew narrating for six years, Kerry Novak, Clay's best friend and greatest love, had a sister named Maggie, and she was the narrator of the book for six years. So she was watching over the road the Dunbar boys yeah. play out their drama. Yeah. And, and why uh, didn't she work? Well, there were a few reasons. There was something about where that was heading that I didn't like, and uh, and there was just – I just felt like it was – I don't know, it was more a subconscious thing that maybe someone within that house, someone who's really trying to understand clay felt like, uh, you know, it felt more important. And uh, and so I tried Matthew, I tried Henry, who's the money-making brother. I tried Rory, who's the really rough one, nicknamed the human ball and chain, and Tommy, the pet collector, the youngest. And uh, Hence the mule in the house. Exactly, you know, and they've got a, you know, the mule called Achilles, a cat, a tabby called Hector, a goldfish called Agamemnon, and you know, and so it goes. And and that you know, God, we hated Tommy for those names. And that was the other thing was there was a real joy a lot of the time. And yeah, there is tragedy and heart in the book, but there are a lot of those moments where these boys are just, you know, and even their parents. There's a lot of there's a lot of life in that family and in that household. And Matthew felt right. And, you know, when I realized it wasn't till I got to the end of writing the book and I was just a mess, you know, writing about Matthew, just wanting Clay to come home. And I realized why he's the right narrator. And it's because he was the one who could most adequately show how much they all missed Clay. And, uh, and, and actually he's writing this story, not as a proof of love, but he understands in the writing of it, how much he loves his brother. And uh, and that to me was why I settled on Matthew from the beginning, I think. And you're just looking, I think you're looking for that moment when you write something and you feel immediately that little bit more alive. And Matt, when Matthew wrote, I went and dug up this typewriter in an old backyard, in an old backyard of a town, I went, oh, I'm playing with the words there now. And then when he says he digs up the typewriter and he calls it, perfect pirateless treasure, you know, because it's out in the middle of nowhere, you know, a thousand miles from the sea. I thought, oh, this feels right. You're just waiting for it to feel right. Well, Matthew trying to, he, he looks back on his life. So he has come to conclusions about, he's, he's worked it all out and he's worked out clay and the, the love that existed in that family, even after Penelope's sad death. But, you know, Matthew is there sort of looking back on his life, but he takes us at the very beginning, as you said, you know, mule in kitchen, five kids running around. And 
I was trying to work out his relationship with Clay. I couldn't get a handle on it for the first few chapters. And for a little while there, I wondered whether, in fact, Clay was uh, autistic in some way, Mm -hmm. that there was some reserve, there was some issue between the two brothers, why they were not connecting. And perhaps it was a physical issue rather than a deeply emotional one. Yeah, and there was there and there are several times where Matthew will have a burst of insight or a question where you know he says not for the first time or as I as I often did I was trying to understand my brother and uh and it's and he says you know in so many ways we were the most alike and there were there were times where I tried you know tried to make it a smaller quieter book I tried, and I actually tried to cut the other three brothers out, which always only ever lasted an hour. And the problem is that Matthew and Clay are the most alike, and uh, and that's why they challenge each other the most as well. And uh, and there's a moment where Matthew also says, not he's in reference to Clay because it's when Henry sort of slaps Clay across the across the ear when they're sitting sitting on the roof together, and he says. It's a mystery even to me how boys and brothers love. And uh, so I think Matthew is trying to understand and I think he knows something has happened that he's not aware of because Clay was always the chosen one in so many ways. He was the one. He said the fourth of us was the best of us and he was a boy of many traits. He was the one who loved Penny and Michael's stories that they used to tell while the other brothers all fought in the lounge room or the hallway Clay was kind of the special one who then, after their mum dies, was more affected than the others. And he still and he started this sort of training regime where he became a runner. And Matthew actually trains him and trains him beautifully until Rory steps in when Clay isn't getting faster. And he says, you know, you're doing this all wrong. You know, he's, it was great. It was beautiful the way you did it. And he won the state championships. But he, he's not getting faster now because... You don't have to run with him anymore. You have to try and stop him. That's how you're going to make him faster. And he says he wants to hurt. He wants to feel it here. And he says because that's how we actually live. And uh, and you know and there's a moment of insight from Rory, who's the really roughhouse brother. So you needed all those brothers I did to bounce and, off, and, and I, all the animals. And I need, the other brothers sometimes are just there for comic relief where, you know, Rory wakes up in the morning and he's hung over and he says to to Clay, you know, he says, oh, could you just get this cat off me? Because, uh, you know, and people often joke, there's Hector the tabby who, uh, you know, people say to me, you know, the real love story in this book, don't you? It's It's between Rory and Hector the cat because he's always waking up and that cat is all over him and he can't find his phone because you know isn't with the alarm the way, isn't going off. Isn't that the way with cats too? They often form an affection with the person in the household who least likes cats. <laughs> oh, and and even or just that idea and it was a little edit that I put in right towards the end where Rory comes in to, to share the bedroom with Tommy who has all these animals and the first thing he says into him uh, he says to him is right get the cat off my bed shithead and the cat is sitting on the bed looking at him going your bed <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and i there was just the idea of i love the idea that we all have chaos in our lives and you know just talking about that suburban bigness again earlier that we invite chaos into our lives we have children uh, we have animals uh, you know and then just 
That, I mean, even us, I mean, we've, we've got these, we've got two kids, two cats and two dogs. And the reason we got a second dog was because he was named Archer and he just wandered in off the street. And, uh, and we found out that that, you know, he'd been from the pound and that was, his name was Archer. And, and the, the boys, the, the Dunbar family live on Archer Street. And so I thought, oh, well, this, this dog, he might be good luck. And as soon as we got him, nothing but bad stuff started happening. <laughs> The book still wasn't working. The other dog needed a knee reconstruction. And, uh, but you know, this is what, I mean, you look at my face in here as I talk to you about these things, I'm actually smiling because these are the things that put life into your life. And even the tragedies of our lives are, are actually reminding us why we live in it and, uh, and, and what the things in our lives are that count. And, uh, and so, you know, embracing the chaos and the tragedies and the comedies of our lives was such an important part to writing this book. Marcus, in uh, the book Thief, Death, as you said, is a narrator and death is everywhere in that book. And um, I, uh, well, you know, its success speaks for itself, but it's still, you know, one of the most incredible books I think most of us have ever read. In, death hovers in this book. And you, you, you're kind of waiting for it to happen because you do get a sense that Penny is going to die. And, of course, when you actually tackle those scenes, they are so moving and so sad. And the effect that it has on the boys and their father is really, uh, well, not extraordinary because it's what happens to all loving families. Mm. But my feeling in this book was not that death was the overarching uh, mantle here, that it was actually love. And I think yeah. you found I think you found a love voice here. Does it feel like that to you? Ah, uh, absolutely. And especially, and that's why I think Matthew is the narrator because he's also, yeah, he's the one who's trying to hold it all together all the time, and he's holding himself together, and he's being the strong one. And I think this is his way of letting that kind, of, letting that love pour out of him. He's punching it out on this typewriter, and it's a. It is a, a kind, without making it sound corny in a way, it is a love letter to his brother and to his family and to the history of his family and to where this all came from, to the stories under the stories. And uh, and what I love, though, is you haven't made him some sort of pompous literary git. He actually writes his book with the same in the same way that he speaks. Because that could have been tempting. Git is one of my favourite words. And, uh, you know, it's uh, in that way of, yeah, he, he does... He, and he even admits at the beginning, he, he says, well, you know, you wouldn't even think, you know, most people look at me and wouldn't think I'd string a sentence together, together, let alone know anything about the epics or the Greeks. And so he's got that sort of knowledge and he wasn't, you know, he was good at school, but he left to look after the family. And, uh, and so I like the idea that, and I know so many people that I grew up with and so many, you know, so many men in a lot of cases, but women too, that not much is expected of their intellect because of where they grew up or how they grew up. And, and people think that they wouldn't read a book and then they're the person, you know, who's read a little life, you know, and, and say, oh, what did you think of that? So I like the idea that people can never be underestimated, especially in what they read and the stories that they have that, you know, give such value uh, to another person when they actually take the time to talk to them. And Matthew is one of those people. 
Your parents uh, migrated from Europe after the war. Your mum is from Germany and your father is from Austria. And I imagine that you grew up in a household full of books because at 16, age 16, you decided you wanted to be a writer. So they must have been around you somewhere. What prompted that idea that, yes, this is something I want to do? I want to write a book. I think it was just reading novels and going, I'm... I, I know this isn't real. I know this is all made up. And knowing that while I was reading it, I was believing it. And to me, you think of, you know, someone performing some kind of magic act where you go, how did they do that? That was what I, I thought that to me was the ultimate magic act. Forget all of those sort of shows. I just thought, God, this is amazing. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to make things up and believe it while I'm writing it. And and I still do that to this day. I go to my desk and sometimes, let's be honest, I go with a sense of dread. <laughs> and I know that feeling. And, and at other times I go, and but I know that that's going to open up and I'm going to write something that day or not, but there'll be days where I write something and I go, oh, like that, just even that, and it's not that that's a brilliant thing, writing an old backyard in an old backyard of a town, but I loved it for the moment that it gave me in feeling where I just went, oh, I'm just playing with the words now. And to me, I, what I realise now, what I, one of the things I really love is that I remember thinking of old binary code ideas where people say there are all these zeros and ones and there are so many combinations and, you know, this is, you know, how some things, some machines work and things like that. I think of words in that way where I'm seeing combinations of words and putting them together in a way that feels both familiar to me but totally unique. And, and rhythm would be part of that too, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, and particularly with this book, it's written, it's written with a kind of, you know, there are all sorts of different kind of rivers running underneath that Dunbar household. You know, and one is that idea of love that you're talking about where you've got these brothers who are so rough and tough with each other, but every, when they need to, they reach into that and they display that for each other as well. And the rhythm of the writing is the other thing that sort of runs through the centre of it. And it does veer either side of it, but it always comes back to that idea. And that was because Penelope Leshushko, who becomes Penny Dunbar, Clay and his brother's mum, arrives in Australia with a copy of the Iliad and a copy of the Odyssey. And I just, just that oral tradition and the the, the rhythm of the writing made me sort of just feel like that was the natural way to write this book as well, the feeling of the words as much as the words themselves. Hence Achilles and Hector, etc. Yeah, and, and that's the exact thing you're talking about at the beginning where you see these animals in the house and you go, why are they named Achilles? Why Why is the pigeon called Telemachus? Well, as you said Telemachus? earlier, you know, rough and tumble people, you make this assumption that yeah. well, they couldn't possibly know anything about, for example, the Greek classics. No, that's right. And that's still offset by the fact that Agamemnon, the goldfish, is butting the, the, the glass of the tank and Rory's watching him. And after 40 times, Matthew says, God, don't you have anything better to do? Don't you have any homework? And he, he says, oh, home, homework's for suckers, Matthew. You know that. This fish is the bloody best. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's always just playing off itself as well in, in a way where um, there is that kind of tragedy, but there's a lot of laughter as well. And and there is there are, you know, great heroics as well. And so just feeling all of that 
in terms of even the animals' names and, and then discovering why they're called those things. It's they're paying tribute to their mum, even though they complain about the names at the same time. And, you know, there were lines in it at one point where they said to Tommy when he came up with Agamemnon for the goldfish, you know, like, oh, why don't you just call him totalitarianism? You know, <laughs> something else we can't say. Well, I wonder how this – to me, this book has such an Aussie, you know, sense of humour, a lot of self-deprecating, a lot of knocking one another, but there's – and gruff love, you know, like rough and tumble, but I love you deep down. And and even Carrie – um, Claire's lovely friend, who she has a tomboyish, I think a very sort of authentic Aussie neighbourhood girl. Mm. I, I kind of think of myself as I used to be somebody probably a bit like that. So it's really familiar to us who live here in Australia, particularly the humour. How's it translating overseas? The Americans, for example, <laughs> are they getting it? <laughs> I don't know, to tell you the truth. And, uh, and I think that was one of the things when I was writing the book, I just went, no. I'm going to do it like this because it has to be in this place and uh, this is where these people belong and I'm not going to try to, you know, make it easier for everybody. It has to be what it is. And uh, and that it was one of the things that, you know, I still feel like there'll be 20% improvement in this book until the day I die. But at the same time, I still feel like my goal was to write it with courage mm. and, uh and and that's sort of, you know, in this case to say, yeah, people who read The Book Thief and, and particularly, say, an American audience, how will they cope with this? You, you just say, well, they're just going to have to. <laughs> Bad luck. They're Go gonna... for it. And, and also... But they made their way to Nazi Germany and death is the narrator. They could... Readers, as you said earlier, are capable of lots of adventures. Well, and what's really interesting as well is that I was having similar conversations or ideas when I was talking about the book thief to people, I'd say, you know, just get through the first 14 pages, you know, or the first, you know, 20 to 30 pages, because, you know, it's not an, just, you got to work for it a little bit. And then I, I just stopped saying yeah. it because you think, well, it's good that things aren't just given to people on a plate. And, it, and, you know, it is still one of those things where in books, we do still translate things when they go to America. And, and, you know, won't it be great when that doesn't have to happen because we know so much about that culture because we've never changed those things as they've come to us. And so that's why we know we can all name a good dozen or so American presidents right down to knowing what a Twinkie is or at least have an idea what one is. So um, I, I, I embrace the idea that this, this book is very Australian because I'm very Australian and yet I'm also from another place. And, uh, Embracing all of those things was really important and uh, in a lot of ways is the heart of the book as well. So I'm going to mention what some interviewers might refer to as the elephant in the room. For me, it's not, but I'm interested to know your answer. So there's a number of years between The Book Thief and this book. And as I've learnt over the years from authors who are not only have I interviewed but who have become friends, that there's an awful lot of other stuff that goes on in an author's life. You know, some people have a part-time job. Some people, such as yourself, embark on an international book tour that seems to go for a long period of time. Some get involved with a screenplay and then the movie or the television series takes them into a whole new direction. Sometimes it's just not that easy to sit down and write another book. But as you said, you started this book when you were 20. What was the biggest stumbling block that you overcame to finish it? I think, I mean, 
there are always there are six ways I could go with that because maybe there were six big stumbling block blocks. But I think I think it was it was a combination of two things. One was there was a huge amount of self doubt. Uh, because was that you, because you'd been built up to so much? Well, the think, young Australian author who's burst onto the scene with the book thief. I think it's more just the door of success is a beautiful thing and it opens really wide and all this really beautiful, pure light comes through and the love of readers and all that kind of thing is is really great. But, of course, some darkness is going to come through that doorway as well and that's the people who don't love you and who are unafraid to tell you so and, and tell more people in the world that they don't love you. And, uh, and, and you start to think, well... Uh, how good am I really? And so you you do have those kind of doubts and and fears, and that can hold you up. The other thing too was just in combination with that was I wanted to bet everything after the book thief. I didn't want to write a smaller book that I didn't feel as strongly about. I want. I said, right now's the time to write Bridge of Clay. Mm-hmm. I want to bet everything I've got. And the big problem was I was trying to write better than I actually am, and uh, and so. You know, just that idea of trying to find something that is actually out of reach. So were you trying too hard? It wasn't that I was trying too hard. I knew I was – it's more the idea of – you sometimes hear about people – you hear writers saying, well, I'm a professional writer. I only start something when I know I can finish it. Whereas I feel like, you know, I only want to write books that I might not be able to finish or else what's the point? And I'm not trying to – I'm not trying to say there's – I think it's much smarter to do it that way and uh, and maybe, you know, I should believe in myself more that I can do it. But I just felt like this book was everything and it felt like I wanted to gather up everything the book thief had given me and then say, right, now I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do a better job of it this time and uh, and I'm going to make it harder than I can actually – do. I'm going to have five brothers. I'm not going to have three brothers. I'm going to have five. And I'm going to have all of these journeys coming into it. And I'm going to have the past and the present, you know, come together in, in all of these kinds of ways. And so with The Book Thief, I thought no one was going to read that book. With Bridge of... And the challenge was, will you still write it? With Bridge of Clay, it was the opposite. I knew a lot of more people were going to read it and they were going to compare it to The Book Thief and so the challenge is, all right, will you still write it? And, of course, you have to. And, uh, and you know, and there was some hard years. Well, I'm so glad you did write it and share Clay Dunbar with all of us and the crazy brothers and the even crazier animals who live in the kitchen. Six quick questions for you, mm-hmm. Marcus. I hope you're ready. It's almost like it's academic. Getting oh. nervous now. <laughs> it's academic. You probably weren't even born when that was on television. Um Anyway, let's go for it. When you were a kid, did you have a favourite book or author or series? Little, a little kid. Yeah, I remember. I think I, I was eating Dr. Seuss books before I started reading them because I'm the youngest of, of four siblings and, uh, and so they were just everywhere. Favourite one, Green Eggs and Ham or...? I think it was Green Eggs and Ham, and now I think I do not want them, Sam. I am. <laughs> it's so great. I think now it's it's the sleep book, and also there's a wocket in my pocket. How old are your kids? 
12 and 8. Okay, so you've been reading to them for quite a while now. Yeah, and uh, and it's it's made such a big difference. And my dad actually said saw me reading to my one-year-old son seven years ago, and he said, gosh, you're a better father than I ever was, because he said, I never read to you. And maybe that was the key to becoming a writer. <laughs> now, second question, can you tell us a couple of fiction books in recent years or authors who have left their mark on you? Yeah, Michael Shaben, who wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, and just talking earlier about, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, when you're playing with the words is the is the the greatest moment is there's a line in The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay when he, he talks about a, an ocean liner coming into New York and he says, the Rotterdam came into New York Harbour like a mountain wearing a dinner jacket. And that's a writer who's in the sandpit at the top of the mountain after doing all the work. Uh, and also, I mean, Jennifer Egan recently and uh, and even, you know, and... I think for the sheer scope and also for not, you know, not shying away from the dark places, Hanya um, Yanagihara. Oh, yes, a Little Life. And just sort of going, no, I'm not going too far. I'm still not going far enough. And I, I kind of loved her hearing her talk about that. What was your – what when the book thief, you know, bought you inevitably, you know, um, monetary – um, success as well as literary success. Can you remember one of the first luxuries you shouted yourself? I can tell you because I feel like there was just the one really and it was uh, I'd been riding my brother's secondhand surfboard for 18 years and I'd never <laughs> had a brand new surfboard of my own and I was walking around Seattle with another writer, Dana Reinhardt, and we'd been on a tour with four other authors and uh, she said, what are you going to do? Like, this book's doing so well. What are you going to I said, I'm buying myself a new surfboard. And it still took three years after The Book Thief started doing well that I finally did it. That is, that's, that is hilarious. But, but you could only be a Sydney writer to say that because in Melbourne we just have Port Phillip Bay. No authors in Melbourne are going off to buy surfboards. But, you know, there's a good story attached. The first time I took it to the beach, I lost my car keys. And I had to walk in with my wetsuit to the railway station, and I got the I got the train home with the brand new board, and my and I walked home barefoot, cross it, you know, like with just gum nuts and rocks everywhere. And I got home, and my wife saw me, and she goes, "Why didn't you Why didn't you call me?" And I'm like, "Well, because I'm an idiot." <laughs> <laughs> um, That'll teach me to get a new surfboard. <laughs> um, this is a question that we've asked all of our uh, guests: Are you in a book club, or have you ever wanted to be in a book club? I'm not in a book club and I've always wanted to be. Oh, you in can a book come and join, join mine if you like. <laughs> and I, I'm just scared. You know what I'm scared of is the night before and I haven't read the book. That's why it, why it always stops me. The recurring dream. You get to the English exam and you haven't read any of the books on the paper. <laughs> that's and that, mine. And that's always the one you do best in. And, and then the one where you've actually done all the work and everything, you just get a, a mediocre result. Thinking about social media and the new digital world, um, my next question is, how has the marketing of a novel in 2018, how does it compare with back in 2005, 2006, when The Book Thief hit the stands? Well, none of those things, they were just starting to come up and it hadn't really hit yet. And so there was more reliance on, on you know, hoping for some big 
you know, media outlet, whereas now a lot of it is more self-driven. And, uh, you know, and even the word podcast didn't exist. The word Twitter didn't exist. And, I mean, and even something like Facebook, I'm not sure when that really started coming in. I'm sure it was in the works around then. But um, but those things, you know, I think it was still, there were things like MySpace, and uh, and I'm not. There were, there were things like literary pages of the age in the Sydney mm. Morning Herald. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and you know, back then I had other authors saying to me like, "You've got to get a website. Make sure you get a website." And now it's well, are you on Instagram? Are you on all of these things? And and I, I find it really difficult to tell you the truth. I just there's just that sort of here I am culture of here I am again. It's it's me. And so actually on this, the whole Bridge of Clay tour that I've done, I've actually just taken a photo of a reader or, or a couple of readers every night and said, you know, this is the reading face of Seattle or the reading face of, of, of Sydney last night. And, uh, and I think if you're trying to make it as much within your own personality as you possibly can and trying not to sell your soul to the devil at the same time. And the final question is, what next? I'm really happy about thinking about writing something new, and uh, and you finally I, got clay out of your system. Yeah, I think so, and and I actually feel like uh, you know, for a long time with this book, everyone was saying just write one of your other ideas, and I'd say, well, that's the problem. I haven't got any other ideas, and it was more that every idea I had was going into this book, and uh, and now I'm starting to see things stand up in front of me, and uh, you know, and I've had 13 years for things to to be stirred up a little bit, and uh, you know, so I'm just looking at writing for six months and see what comes of it, and just loving it and loving the struggles of it as well. Well, Marcus, I'm incredibly admiring of a person who writes a book which is 500 plus pages and you can pretty much quote exactly every single t- anecdote today you've quoted word for word of the conversation I'm you must have edited a lot I guess but I'm in awe of someone who can remember that it's you know it's uh it's not even I don't even want to say this book's a part of me I mean this book kind of is me yeah and, I get uh, that feeling and uh you know and that's why mornings like this uh, or afternoons like this are, are, are so gratifying and and such a, a privilege so thanks for having me. Oh, we loved having you. We wish you every success and many, many book sales with Bridge of Clay. And look, I feel certain that we'll see it popping up on various short lists and long lists of literary awards next year. And um, I just want to thank you personally for bookending my reading year so beautifully. It started with Tim Winton's The Shepherd's Hut. Again, another story of a teenage boy in crisis. And we conclude with Bridge of Clay and the utterly memorable character of Clayton Dunbar. So thank you very much for helping me with my reading year. I've had such a lovely time talking today and I do love Bridge of Clay so much. Thanks, Marcus. Oh, thank you. And you've got a great job <laughs> talking to Tim Winton at the start of the year. God, I'm, you know. I, oh, no, I haven't I'm, yet. I'm, I, I read him. I haven't yet. We're going to get him on next year, we hope. <laughs> that's great. That's my, that's my aspirational. <laughs> After you, you were the number one. <laughs> Thank you. A big thank you once again to Marcus Suzak for joining us on Episode 6 of The Book Pod, and we look forward in 2019 to watching the progress of Bridge of Clay as more fans glue on and the judging panels, I suspect, of various literary awards opt to give it a long or short list mention. And if you want to follow the news and reviews relating to the book, just jump on the website 
www.bridgeofclaybook.com. Bridgeofclaybook.com. And if you want to read more about Marcus and what he's up to, you can go to zuzakbooks.com. So that's Z-U-S-A-K books.com. Can I also remind our podsters that next week we will be releasing our bonus episode, Book Club. Jane, it's time we got together with Caro and had a chat about the Camilla Shapsey novel, Home Fire. Have you finished it yet? I have finished it. And Corey, I have to say, I'm now like trying to choose which family member I pass it on to. So I'm not sure if I want my older or my younger sister to read it so I can talk. But without any spoilers, if you haven't read it yet, it will engross you for a weekend, a few days. And I honestly had no idea how it was going to end until the last couple of moments. And just sat there shell-shocked. Yeah, a lot of people like, have oh. had to, you know, regroup and actually yeah. download about it afterwards. It is a very good book for book clubs because it raises lots of themes and issues. If you haven't had a read, you still have a few days and you can let us know what you think. You can email us or leave a note on our Instagram, which is at the book pod, Or email us via feedback at thebookpod.com.au. But yeah, it's certainly one of those books I said to you, oh, I would never have picked that up and read it based on the blurb and it took me so deep into a story I would never have discovered that I'm really grateful to actually having had my sort of eyes opened to this this whole kind of realm that is encapsulated in this story. Well, that's great. And I know Kara's got some strong thoughts about the book too. And as I said, please leave us a voice message. You can record it and send it as an email or contact us. We just a little message, only a few words or a couple of sentences would be fantastic. We'd love to hear from you. Jane, um, just before we go on to uh, my recommendation of the week, I did want to mention that remember when we interviewed Jane Harper, the author of The Dry and The Lost Man, she mentioned that The Dry had been picked up uh, from uh, as, a, as a movie or a Netflix series. We're not quite sure what it's going to be. And she couldn't let us know who was going to play Aaron Fork, the detective. We were so desperate to know because I think Jane is going to become, you know, the new Leon Moriarty with these Hollywood starlets or wanting to make uh, versions of her writing. It's actually been announced that Aussie actor Eric Banner, who, of course, you know, famously played Chopper and has been in so many great Australian and international productions, just incredible. And I sort of had this feeling that someone like him, oh, look, he's just Mr. A-list Aussie who just crosses over into the US kind of realm as well. And I just thought "Mm, that would really suit. So really excited about that. And it sounds as though from what Jane had said, production well underway and I don't think it's going to be too long before we see it hitting our screens. Well, it's great for her and it's certainly great for the book. It's going to bring a whole new audience back to that terrific book. So, Jane, this week's book pod recommendation of the week is Becoming by Michelle Obama. It's her 420-page memoir and it starts from her early years growing up in Chicago and it travels through Michelle's life and and through the whole sort of White House era with her husband Barack as president and, of course, her post-White House life. I'm a real fan of this memoir, Jane. The author is a person of immense integrity and she's got a great sense of humour and a real wisdom and she has an easy ability to self-analyse, reflect and self-deprecate. Jane, I found out today that Australian booksellers have sold 64,000 copies already in just four weeks. That's pretty amazing. Isn't it for Michelle Obama's? Who would have thought? Mm. It's really amazing. They've had to do a second print run. So that's very exciting. Michelle's a terrific writer, and I think that's probably the key to part of the key of the success of this one. And she engages her readers from the very first page. And she's a woman who's lived a very normal middle class life at the beginning, juggling all the financial strains, a demanding career, two kids, a husband who was often away on with his political job. 
they've had their marital stress. And in fact, they did have counselling at one stage. And uh, she did have a fear at one stage that her busy life was isolating her from her female friends. And she talks quite a bit about the importance of getting together with your girlfriends. And I would love to sort of see how, especially with the leadership we've got in Australia and in the US, I know there's something really fascinating about someone who has been right in there close to a man of such power and influence it's as Obama. Real, yeah, it's so. really amazing. And and what I loved about it is that you would think that perhaps she would go the easy option, which would be to focus on those White House years and, and name names mm. and, and all the big events and all that sort of thing. It is pretty contained. And a lot of it is, you know, the White House through her eyes. So trying to make sure that her two girls had a, a reasonably well-adjusted life, um, how they coped as a family, all that sort of stuff. So that is a really good book, um, Michelle Obama's Becoming. I highly recommend it. And um, yeah, I think I think you would really enjoy it, Janie. It is a big it is a big tome, but it's a great Christmas gift. So, potties, it's time to say goodbye until next time. Um, thank you, Jane, for our lovely conversation. I just want to also, Cory, before we wrap up, send a little hello to Vicky Mills, who on our Facebook page, of course, we uh, mentioned this podcast on the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page, has been tagging all of her friends in to our post oh, to say, listen thanks, to Vicky, this. That's so nice. And also said uh, she loves sharing the love. Look forward to both podcasts, and I'm thrilled when they drop. Keep bringing us great stuff. So, really excited. Exciting. It's so nice to get all of your feedback and your comments. And if you can help us out sharing a bit of love on Facebook like Vicky did, it's always wonderful. That's really great. And the other way, of course, is through iTunes. Of course, if you can rate us, if you can rate the book pod, it works a treat in helping other podcast listeners to find us. And you can contact us via email or follow us, as I said, on the Instagram at the book pod. Thanks, everyone, for your company today. Thanks again to Marcus. And thank you, Miss Jane, for your ever wonderful work in the production suite. I just wanted to say that um, it's been an absolute joy watching this book pod evolve over the last few weeks and you and I have had a lot of fun working with it and I look forward to 2019. Happy reading, everyone. <laughs>